Professor John Graby talks about his recent article on the Constitution, Democracy, and Troubled Times. This is The Legal Impact, the weekly podcast presented by the University of New Hampshire Franklin Pierce School of Law. Now accepting applications for JD, graduate programs, and online professional certificates. Learn more and apply at law.unh.edu. Opinions discussed are solely the opinion of the faculty or host and do not constitute legal advice or necessarily represent the official views of the University of New Hampshire. So, John, this podcast is centered around your recent Constitutional Connections article that was in the Conquer Monitor titled The Constitution, Democracy, and Troubled Times. And you lay out the difference between the textualist, originalist view of interpreting the Constitution versus a more modern lens in order to fix the issues with our government. Can you kind of lay out the difference between these two different viewpoints before we dive in deeper into the specifics? Yeah, and I'm happy to. And, and um, you know, first of all, the, the, the different viewpoints, I guess, uh, are necessitated by the way in which... Uh, a majority of the court that, uh, you know, is is sort of signed on to the textualist, originalist enterprise um, has interpreted the document. And so, you know, the basic conundrum that I, I, I tried to, uh, you know, surface in this in this column is this. Um, the argument for textualism and originalism and a textualist, originalist approach to the Constitution um, is justified by democracy. We have a, a, a democratic form of government, although many parts of the Constitution are anti-democratic, you know, the default is to be a democracy. Um, And yet we give the power of final say about the meaning of our Constitution to the least democratically accountable branch of the federal government, which is the judiciary, which holds its appointment for life, so long as it doesn't engage, you know, federal judges and Supreme Court justices uh, have their judicial appointments uh, for life unless they engage in high crimes or misdemeanors. And and we've seen recently how high it is, (laughs) how hard it is for Congress to find that. So, um, and, and, and that's, again, that's because we don't want judges to be, you know, sort of usurping we the people's prerogative to be, you know, the ultimate lawmakers under our constitutional order. Um, and that's a really powerful argument, I think. Um, and, you know, I'd like to acknowledge there are different types of textualism and originalism and all sorts of different approaches. But the approach that's ascendant right now has led in recent years to a number of efforts to address perceived problems with our democracy being held unconstitutional. All right. So perhaps the most obvious example of this is the the interpretation of the First Amendment that has been handed down over recent decades. That makes it very, very hard to regulate money in politics. And that's Um, specifically around the case Citizens United. That's right. In in related cases. That's exactly right. But, um, you know, legislatures, be it Congress or state legislatures, have have very little room to maneuver if they want to, you know, to regulate and limit the amount of money in politics. Another example is the Voting Rights Act. Uh, So the Voting Rights Act was first passed in 1965, um, and uh, it it sought to address the fact that uh, African-American, the African-American vote was suppressed um, in parts of the country, uh, and it imposed rather unusual requirements that states uh, which, you know, failed to meet certain benchmarks um, had to get approval every time they tried to change their election law. Uh, well, the um, the preclearance provisions, as those as those approval provisions are, are called, um, those were struck down as unconstitutional about eight years ago. Um, and what we immediately saw is uh, renewed efforts in some parts of the country um, to um, to change voting laws. And many would say to change voting laws to make it harder for people to vote. That 
precedent, though, um, I think would stands as a, as a powerful barrier to you know to use of the Voting Rights Act to actually uh, you know deal with the fact that there are legislatures that are trying to suppress the vote uh, among African Americans. Now, uh, you know, the, the reason they're doing that, they would be the first to admit, is 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 because African Americans tend to vote along partisan lines. In fact, uh, being African-American is a, is a greater indicator of a likelihood to vote for a Democratic candidate than being a registered Democrat is. <laughs> so, you know, it's not surprising in these partisan times that we would see that. Um, uh, nonetheless, um, I think it would be difficult um, for Congress uh, to reenact the preclearance uh, provisions in light of the opinion in that Supreme Court case. You know, similar story with respect to partisan gerrymandering. Uh, a couple of years ago, the Supreme Court basically said federal courts uh, cannot be involved in claims of partisan gerrymandering. They came within one vote of actually holding that ballot initiatives uh, cannot circumvent the, the legislature and and um, put uh, redistricting into the hands of independent redistricting commissions. And I suspect that changes on the court since that decision came down uh, probably mean that there are a majority of justices on the court right now who would say that uh, ballot initiatives to, to sort of bypass the state legislature in, in terms of redistricting uh, uh, are unconstitutional. Um, now, whether the court will revisit that, that's a separate question. Uh, and then finally, we have examples from, you know, from the 90s where the Supreme Court uh, struck down term limits uh, in Congress as unconstitutional, and also struck down the line item veto. Now, I'm not he I'm not saying that any of these decisions is wrong, um, but what I am suggesting is that on the one hand, you know, we we have this uh, we have this default towards democracy for a reason, and that's what makes the textualist originalist argument a powerful one. It, it serves democratic interests in the abstract. But the way in which textualism and originalism are, are actually being put into practice, uh, at least by a majority of this Supreme Court, is quite regularly leading the court to say no to legislative majorities who are trying to experiment with various measures that they think might help relieve some of the pressure that our democracy clearly is under right now. I mean, this is kind of an existential crisis. I've I've made no bones about it when with previous discussions with Buzz over similar topics, where I'm a little skeptical um, on both sides of, of this topic. But I mean, it's kind of an existential crisis. Where what would the founding fathers ultimately say about the the ways of interpreting it? Would they say no, the Constitution comes first, or would they say no, the democratic process comes first? You know, we tend to think that they're, you know, the founding fathers were of one mind on some of these basic issues, yeah. but the reality is they weren't. They're Definitely as divided as as we are. Um, and that's actually part of the argument within textualism and originalism about how one ought to do it. Um, you know, the again, the ascendant methodology says that, you know, constitutional text needs to be understood as it would have been understood at that point in time that it became law. Um, this is the original public meaning. Uh, of the law. And again, um, that is justified by reference to democracy. There are some textualist originalists who say, however, that, you know, the founding fathers, especially when they spoke in abstract language, should be understood to have invited future generations to pour their own meaning uh, into constitutional text. Um, there's nothing, in other words, in the Constitution that makes clear that the Constitution should be understood to be time dated. Um, and they have lots of arguments why it would be better 
for you know we the people of 2021 to be able to give meaning to what we think uh, equal protection of the law requires or due process or free speech. So that's a debate, you know, that's, yeah, been, I mean, that's been with us forever. And it probably would have been reflected had the founders ever deba- debated textualism and originalism. I, I, there would have been a difference of opinion among them uh, on that very question. I mean, wouldn't a valid argument be by the founding fathers that we gave you the amendment process? That is an argument, you know, um, and um, it's true. And we have amended the Constitution uh, only 17 times since 1791. You know, the first 10 amendments came in a, in a chunk uh, when the Bill of Rights were added to the Constitution in 1791. Um and that's a very, again, uh, it's a very reasonable point uh, that is made in response. The, the, the reality is that the process of amending the Constitution is so arduous uh, that um, it's it's somewhat difficult, you know, but never say never. But it's somewhat difficult to see um, constitutional amendments being adopted right now because of the supermajoritarian requirements for doing so. You need two thirds of both houses of Congress to sign off on a proposed constitutional amendment. And then you need three quarters of state legislatures uh, to approve it. There's almost always going to be, you know, a sizable interest that is benefiting from the status quo, right? That's going to be opposed to any constitutional amendment. Um, And it just doesn't take very much to block an amendment to the constitution. I don't mean to be pushing too hard against you on this, but it's very – it's super interesting to me. I mean isn't there a kind of inherent problem with consistent interpretation of the constitution if every 50 to 100 years we make considerable changes into the way we view the constitution? You know, there's absolutely a downside because, you know, um, I think there's a lot of force to, you know, this is a position that Justice Scalia argued in favor of why you need to understand the text in a time dated way, because it's like taking your finger out of a hole in a dam or opening the door. Once you open it, you inevitably invite judges to pour their own values and pour their own meaning into the Constitution. And the judges, you know, who will do so at the top of the heap, the United States Supreme Court, um, are not judges that we can recall, you know, through the electoral process. Um, so if they're imposing values on the rest of us um, that we don't share um, through constitutional interpretation, um, that can be extraordinarily frustrating in a political society that is at bottom supposed to be a democracy. So it's a, it is. It's a very, very powerful argument. And it may well turn um, on how comfortable one is with judges exercising power. You know, the argument you can make back against that is that, um, you know, those who get appointments to the U.S. Supreme Court, you know, are not typically highly marginal characters. I mean, they have to be appointed by the president. They need to be confirmed by the Senate. Everybody, you know, everybody, these are very, very high stakes nominations, as we've seen recently. So, you know, it's not likely that we would see someone uh, appointed to the Supreme Court who'd suddenly say, you know, I, 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 <laughs> I think we should reinterpret this whole thing from scratch. You know, that's that's unlikely to happen. But again, back and forth we go. The argument goes round and round. And there's there's been a lot of it seems like a lot of the important decisions that go on the more modern interpretation are civil rights oriented, like gay marriage, uh, going back to. Uh, Jim Crow laws going away, things like that must have been more in the modern interpretation as opposed to a strictly textualist originalist view, I'd imagine. Yeah, it's a, you know, the big question is Brown versus Board of Education. Right. Because there is a pretty strong argument that Brown versus Board of Education, it would have been inconsistent with the, with the understanding held by, you know, the maj- a majority of the people who were alive and following the issue at the time 
that the Equal Protection Clause became law. Now, there are originalists and textualists who have who have said that Brown was correct from an originalist uh, uh, textualist position. And then there are critics who say, well, that they're you know, that just proves the limitations of the textualist uh, originalist enterprise because it proves that you can you can get to where you want to go uh, while purporting to be a textualist and an originalist. It is the fact uh, that those are the issues that have been most salient and that people care the most about um, for, for really understandable reasons right now. You know, and so in making this argument that we ought to think of democracy not just in the abstract, but actually in terms of what this method of, of constitutional interpretation leads to in, in, in terms of the Supreme Court throwing up stop signs to majorities today who are trying to include things, I'm not, again, I'm not arguing that any of these decisions are wrong, but, you know, just about every every decision that I listed or made reference to in what I when I was talking to you was a 5-4 decision, except for one, um, uh, which was a 6-3 decision. That was the line item veto case. So these are not slam dunks. You know, these are cases where, you, you know, nobody would say that you just look at the text of the Constitution and the answer is totally obvious. And what I'm suggesting is maybe, you know, a, building a presumption into constitutional interpretation that says that we ought to really defer to legislative majorities um, today who are trying to address uh, obvious problems with our democracy um, and should not be too aggressive in deploying judicial review to say, sorry, you can't do that. Thanks for listening to The Legal Impact presented by UNH Franklin Pierce School of Law. Don't spread a word about the show. Please be sure to subscribe and comment on your favorite podcast platform, including Apple, Google, and Spotify.